Our passage this morning is going to come from Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. Uh, So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. If you don't have one, there's one on the seat pocket in front of you, uh, and it's on page 922. If you would turn uh, there now, um, I will read that for us. Uh, And here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. It is a gift to us. And so if you are able, would you stand in honor and reverence? Chapter 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brett. You losing your voice? A little bit? Too much St. Patty's Day singing? Brett was at my house on St. Patty's Day. We may have sung some songs together, because that's what you do on St. Patty's Day. For those of you far from Utah, you guys don't know that, but that's, that's what you do. All right, we are in this series, um, The Pursuit of the Table, and it's part of a larger series, kind of a group of series here at Flourishing Grace, where we are leaning into the things that we pursue here at Flourishing Grace, right? That we've talked about um, the pursuit of formation. We want to pursue spiritual formation as we are formed from one degree of glory into the image of Christ. We want to become more like Jesus, supernaturally formed into his image. We talked about that in January. Then we pursue dependency. I talked about that earlier as we were talking about prayer. Dependency drives us to prayer. It's a good and right thing. We want to be a people who pursue that. We pursue the table. We pursue the table. We're going to talk about some more things we pursue, but right now we're talking about uh, the table. And God has been I mean, just doing a work in some of us here at Flourishing Grace and increasing our passion for these things, a passion for formation and a passion for prayer and a passion for the table. It's been sweet to see. And I just love what God is doing in our midst right now at Flourishing Grace. And so last Sunday, we talked about, I mean, the need to be a people and the call to be a people who do life together around the table. 
that for 250-ish years, this is what the church did. They gathered regularly in their homes and they shared meals together. We see this in the scriptures. We see this in the history, kind of the early days of the church. Even after the scriptures are closed, we see this happening. They would come together and they would eat and they would have intentional community together. We talked about that last Sunday. But they also expanded that. Hospitality was a driving force of the early church. Right, the, the, the word hostile and hospital and all of these things that come from this, the root word from, of hospitality, right? hospice, right? even the caring for the dead or the, those who are about to die. Right? That's what the church was known for, all of those things. And we're going to talk more about that next Sunday. And what does it mean to extend hospitality as hospitality has been extended to us from God? But this morning, I want to talk about a different table. Not the table of maybe necessarily fellowship or the table of hospitality. Both of those things are present here. But I want to talk about the Lord's table, communion, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, whatever tradition you grow up in. There's a lot of different names for it. That's what we're going to lean into this morning. Where does this come from? What is this idea? As I said a minute ago, for the first 250 years of the church, right, this, this came, this this. this um, the sacrament, the breaking of bread and the passing of the cup of wine came within the context of a larger meal. The church would gather in homes. They would eat dinner together. They would then at some point in that dinner, there would be a, a moment, a special moment where that bread was broken and the wine was passed representing the body and the blood of Christ, this presence of Christ among them, partaking in his presence. And then somewhere uh, around 300 A.D., as the church becomes more organized um, and larger, right, um, with the conversion of Constantine, it becomes the, uh, the, the, the known religion of Rome, the accepted religion of Rome, the official religion uh, of the state and of the Roman Empire, and, and all of a sudden it kind of grows. Now everybody is participating in this because you kind of have to if you are a Roman citizen, which is most of the known world. And so now everybody's participating in this. And so they, it moves out of homes and away from uh, the small table or, or the small table in a home to, to larger rooms. And they build cathedrals in, in church buildings where people would gather. But even then, even then, at the center, at the kind of front and center is an altar that holds the two elements the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice that is the blood of Christ. They were front and center. That's what it was for another, I don't know, can't do math, uh, 1,000 some odd years, okay? Uh, that's how long. They, they sat in front of, of the church. So the first thing, the focal point was the body and the blood of Christ. When you came in, that's what it was dead center. And then 500 years ago, you have the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation kind of warred against some of the kind of the bad and terrible doctrine that was being preached and proclaimed, the oppressive ways that the church was taking advantage of people. But in, in that, there was a number of things that these reformers did. Famously, kind of most famous, um, this guy named Zwingli, Aldrich Zwingli, he was a Swiss reformer. He went to war on communion. He did a number of things. Well, he, he actually literally went to war. He died in battle fighting Catholics. Um, and that's not a joke. You can read his biography later. It's a story for another day. Um, but he, he says, man, this altar needs to go. We, we, don't, we don't come to the altar again. Jesus died once for all. Once for all. That's it. We don't need to come again and again and again to receive the forgiveness of sins. That was a doctrine that was being preached. He says, that's not true. That's not true. And so kind of feeds the first one. It says, let's pass the plate. 
Let's pass communion because Jesus comes to us. But he also took it a step farther. He says, there's no unique and special presence in this. This is not literally the body or literally the blood of Christ. Right? There's nothing that, this is a symbol, like a wedding ring. There's nothing supernatural in my ring. It's just a, it's just a band of metal. There's nothing, but it's symbolic of something far greater. That's what this is, Zwingli says. And so he removes the altar and replaces it with a pulpit. And I want to make the case, regardless of where you stand on communion, we're going to talk more about it in a little bit, that for nearly 2,000 years, what was meant to be, what was instituted by our King, our Savior and our God, has been being diminished. It's been diminished less and less and less of what it was meant to be. What it was meant to be. And I'm not, I'm not ripping on Zwingli. Here's the reality. Like, I like that there's a pulpit up here. That's why I have a job. Thanks, Zwingli. I appreciate it. Like, it's good. I'm a preacher. I love that. It's not a pulpit. It's a table. But you know what I'm saying, right? I, I'm, I'm happy that this is this way. But I think that there's something that has transpired in the midst of this that we've lost. You see, I don't think that God longs for good preaching. I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what he's chasing after. I don't think that's what Jesus has given his life for. The reality is, is that I could preach the most perfect sermon ever preached, and it is meaningless to you unless God takes that word and plants it in your heart and sets it ablaze. Only then, only then is there any meaning and any significance in anything that I do. John could come and he could play like the most amazing song that's ever been sung and ever played. He could play it perfectly. And it's meaningless unless the Holy Spirit awakens something in you to turn your gaze towards Christ and to inspire true worship within you. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. And yet today in the West, in America, many, 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 many Christians, if not most, if not most, will gather in their churches ready to come and hear good preaching, and good music to sing their favorite songs. And if they don't get it, if they don't get those things, they're just going to go down the street and they're going to find something better someplace else. And I want to make the case this morning that what God is after is not great preaching or great music, but presence. And what he wants you to experience in this place is his presence. He wants you to draw near to him. Have you come here this morning to hear preaching to sing songs, or to experience the presence of God. That's why he wants you here. He wants to pour out his presence upon you. He wants to expose you beautifully and wonderfully to himself. This is why we gather. We, we don't gather for the sake of preaching. Preaching is one part that's meant to point us to Christ. That's my only job. Singing, we don't gather for singing. Singing is meant to evoke in us, to remind us of the presence of God. God uses these things to, to awaken us to his presence. God is hungry for presence. And this is why he's given us this table. This is why this table exists. To remind us of his pursuit, the presence of all that he has done to draw near to us. I want you to see this this morning. To pursue the table is to pursue the presence of God. To pursue the table is to pursue the presence of God. 
That is what we are here to do. When we gather, we gather to pursue the presence of God. When we come to this table, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the sacrament, whatever you want to call it, it's to pursue the presence of God. Before we get into the Last Supper and the scripture that Brett read, I want to back way up for just a minute and just kind of make the case for you that God is passionate about you experiencing his presence. We go all the way back to the very beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve, they are created into the presence of God. They're created into the presence of God. They're, they're not created and then invited into it. They're created into it. From the moment they're created, they are with God in the garden. They're eating with him. They're walking with him. They're spending time with him. And then fast forward, you guys know the story, Genesis 3, right? Their separation comes in. But what is the temptation of the devil in Genesis 3? A meal. Come, eat with me instead. Come, partake in a meal with me. I have something better for you. If you sit at my table and you eat my fruit, it'll be better than the presence of God. You'll become like God. You'll no longer need him anymore. Your eyes will be opened. You'll become like him. Come sit at my table. Come eat with me. The temptation is to come and eat with the devil, to receive something greater than the presence of God. And in that moment, we are removed from the table of God. We no longer sit with him. We no longer eat with him. We no longer dine with him. We are no longer in his presence from that point on. And when God wants to show, when he wants to demonstrate, so fast forward to the time of Moses, he removes the people out of slavery in Egypt. He's leading them into the promised land. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build kind of a, a temporary structure for me that you can bring with you where you go, this tabernacle, this tent that is erected for God to come and draw near to his people because I want to be present. I want my people to know that I desire presence. And inside this, this tent, in the holies, God says, I, mean, there's, I want there to be something in here that's a picture of my desire for presence. And what is it? It's a table. Inside the holies, there's a table. God says, I want you to build a table. Build it out of acacia wood. Wrap that thing in gold. I want you to put these two golden vessels on it that's going to hold wine. I want you to put out 12 loaves of bread. And I want you to call that bread the bread of the presence. When my people think about me and my pursuit of presence. I want them to think of a table, 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, vessels of wine, the best wine you have. And then every week the priest would go in and they would take the loaves of bread and they would break them and they would eat the bread and they would drink the wine. And they'd bring out 12 new hot loaves of bread and they'd offer them up to God. Every single week they're going in to do this. Yes, now once a year they go into the holies of holies to be with God. But every single week, they're going in and they're reminding themselves, and God longs to be present with us. God longs to be present with us. There's a table that holds the bread of presence. When God wants to show his face, literally translates the bread of face, which is an awkward thing to say, right? So we say the bread of presence. But this is what it is. When God wants to show his face to his people, this is a table with wine and bread. Backing up, even uh, when, Moses, when Moses first leads the people out of Israel, right? He sends the plagues on Egypt, the last plague, right? The night of the Passover, where Moses says, man, we've, here's the deal. God is going to kill the firstborn son of every house in all of Egypt. And so we must, we must mark our houses. So they kill the, the, these, these lambs. Every house kills a lamb. They put the blood over the doorpost of the house. And that night they eat lamb and bitter herbs. And the next day they walk out of Egypt. 
One year from that day, God says, hey, I want you to do something so that you never forget what I've done. I want you to eat that meal again. Remember the meal you ate a year ago on this very night? Eat it again. Lamb, bitter herbs, eat that meal again. And then that sparks a tradition. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, Jews have been gathering to eat what's called the Passover meal. Passover meal, where every single thing on the plate is deeply symbolic. Nearly everything, let's go, hang on, we're going to get there in a second. Nearly everything on the plate is deeply symbolic of what God did in leading his people out of slavery to bring them into a greater presence so that they might experience his presence. Every element on this plate is a reminder that God pursues the presence of his people. He wants to be with them. He's left breadcrumbs throughout history, pointing us back to his desire for presence. And then on the night that Jesus is betrayed, this is the meal that they are going to partake in. The meal that these, little, these Jewish men have been taking since they were little Jewish boys, when their dad would sit them down and teach them about each one of the elements in this meal and say, this points to God, and this points to God, and this points to God. Look at all that he's done for you. Look at all that he's done for us. And Jesus sits down with his best friends to take this meal. Brett read it for us earlier, but I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, starting in 20, Matthew 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, multi-day party, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is a specific meal we're going to eat, the Passover meal. He said, go into the city, a certain man, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as, uh, directed, as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The disciples go to prepare a very specific meal. Jesus doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to describe it because they know exactly what they're supposed to do. They've all been taught to eat the same meal every year since they were little boys. And they gather for the Passover. And Jesus leads as the rabbi leads the Passover. Each element reminding them of what God has done in leading his people out of slavery in Egypt for thousands and thousands of years, pursuing his people. And there becomes an awkward moment where Jesus says, and by the way, P.S., one of you guys is going to betray me. Um, and they're like, wait, what, me? Wait, who, me? And Jesus is like, wait, is it, is it me? And Jesus is like, that's what you said. All right. And, and then Jesus is like, no, no, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Listen to me. Here's what's most important. This broken bread. And the Passover meal, we take it, we break it, we, hot, we wrap it up, we hide it. You know what that one is? You're like, no, no one's ever told me what that one means. Jesus says, that's because that's my body. It's been broken for you. In this cup, this cup of wine, you know what this one represents? That's my blood. It's going to be shed for you. This is it. This cup is my blood. It's been shed for you. There was multiple, there was three cups on the table. Each one had deeply significant things that pointed to God's pursuit of presence. And Jesus says, this one, a cup of redemption, this one's mine. I'm going to redeem you with my blood. This, how you're going to be redeemed, is through my blood. It all points to me. 
And then late into the night, they sing hymns together and they go out to the garden to pray together. I love Matthew's picture of how he portrays this. Jesus says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, or sorry, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. That's important. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This meal points us back to what God has done, right? It's the Passover meal points us back to all that God has done. It reminds us that God pursues the presence of his people. But then it points us to specifically what Jesus is about to do or what for us, what he's already done is death on the cross, his body and his blood offered up to buy, to purchase the presence of God that we might be restored so that we could enter in. It points us to a future meal a future time, Jesus says, remember this too. There's a time coming. There's a time coming. And I will not eat this again until that time comes. There's a greater meal coming. Isaiah uh, speaks of this greater meal. Um, pointing to, to this. And in, in Isaiah 25, he is pointing forward. He's pointing towards um, the coming of Christ. And in the middle of the coming of Christ, in all that Jesus is going to do, Isaiah talks about a meal. Isaiah 25, verse 6, it'll be up here on the screen. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, now we're talking, or rich food full of marrow, or of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. What happens when Jesus is crucified? The veil in the temple is torn in two, right? I want the people to see me. I want the people to know me. I want to be present with my people. And that veil, I'm going to remove it. How am I going to remove it? I'm going to remove it through my son. I'm going to remove it through my son. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. This thing out there in the distance in the future, this insurmountable thing that is removing you from me called death, I'm going to swallow it up. I'm going to remove that so that we can be together forever. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to remove your reproach. I'm going to wipe the tears from your face. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. All of this points to Jesus. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, it all points to Jesus. And all of it, listen to me, all of it, you can trace back. If you know anything about Jesus, you can trace it all back except for one thing. A meal. What is that? This feast full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. What does that point to you? 
I believe it's pointing to, I think it's pointing to something even greater than that, something beyond the Last Supper, to a greater meal. The table reminds us not just what Christ has done, but why Christ has done what he has done. There's a greater meal coming for us, a greater feast coming for us, a feast that will fulfill every longing and every desire in every person who comes to that table, a greater feast. Let me ask you a question. At a wedding, how many of you guys have been to a wedding in the past couple years? Anybody? How many of you guys have been to a wedding like ever? (laughs) Maybe everybody? I don't know. Can't tell. Um, Who's who's the center of attention at a wedding? Like whose date is, is it? Good job, guys. I mean, that's good. That's good. Good job, fellas. Let all the men in the room. The brides. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All the mothers of the groom in the room are like, ah, the brides. Um, yeah, it's the bride's day. It's the bride's day. Not a true question. It's the bride's day. It belongs to her. The wedding day belongs to the bride. It's her day. She is the guest of honor. She is the center of attention. I want to show you what's going to happen in this future meal. I want you to keep that in mind as I read from Revelation 19, 6 through 9. John, in a vision, hears this. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Our King reigns. I long to hear that sound. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What are the righteous deeds of the saints? Anybody? What are the righteous deeds of the saints? Christ's sacrifice. Christ's deeds have been counted to us. As righteousness, his body, his blood, his righteousness. We will be clothed in his righteousness. His bride will be wrapped in his righteousness on that day. And the angel said to me, write this down. Write it down. This is important, John. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who is the bride on that day? We are. We are. Christ is the lamb. He's the bridegroom. The church is his bride. And on that day, she is the guest of honor. And I don't want you to mishear me. I don't want you to think that I'm speaking heresy. Listen to me. All the glory on that day goes to Christ. But the the glory that we are clothed in is his glory. The angels will marvel at our beauty on that day. I'll say, weren't you the one that was like covered in sin? Like, what happened to that? Like, how did you get so beautiful? Weren't you the one that was covered in, in, in darkness and cast out of the kingdom of God? Like, what has happened to you? Aren't you the one that ate, ate of the fruit in the garden? We've been clothed in the righteousness of our king. His glory has become our crown, and we wear it. As we come in as the guest of honor to the table, 
the largest table that anyone's ever seen. It seats millions of people who have given their lives over to Christ and said, I will marry you. I will give my life to you. I will submit everything to you as though you were my very husband. I love you more than anything in this world. My life belongs to you. You are mine and I am yours. We come to the table together, the table of our Father for all eternity. This is our hope. This is the future feast that all of it, everything's pointing to. God says, I'm going to prepare a table before you, and this is the table. You are the guest of honor. Write this down. This is important. Blessed is everyone who is invited to this table. Who is invited to it? Who is invited to it? I can't hear you. You're kind of whispering. Everyone's invited to it. Everyone's invited to it. The question is, will you accept the invitation to it? Will you come and feast with the Lamb? Will you feast with Him? Will you partake in His beauty? Will you be wrapped in His majesty, in His marvelous deeds, in His glory? Will you see His splendor? And will you delight in it? Or will you see his splendor and flee from it because you never accepted the invitation? I don't deserve to be in that party. I don't deserve to be in that room. I don't deserve any of it, but I'm invited into it. But I must accept that invitation. And so every time we gather at this table, at at the table of communion, it is pointing us back and showing us God's beating heart to be present with us. It reminds us the body and blood of Christ, what was given that we might be ridded of our sin, that they would be removed and we'd be clothed in righteousness so that we could draw near and once again sit at his table and feast with him for all eternity, that we might be the guests of honor, not because of anything we've done, no merit, no merit. I've done nothing. I've done nothing. It's his righteous deeds that I will be clothed in on that day, not mine, because I don't have any. I don't have any. I'm invited to the table to come sit with Christ and enjoy and delight his righteous deeds. We must not separate the juice from the bread from the table because Jesus is calling us to not only remember what he did, but why he did it. He's calling us to remember not only what he did, but why he did it. For 2,000 years, it's been believed by most Christians that there's something sacred and supernatural that happens when the church gathers around this table, the table of communion that points us back to God's heart, the sacrifice of the Son, future table. There's something that happens. There's a unique presence of God. Jesus has given us this table so that we might draw near, that we might taste and see. And what do we do? What do we do with this table? What have we been doing for the past 500 years around this table? We've been arguing about it. What does that mean? Special presence of God, that we're partaking in his presence. What does that mean? Is it like, is this literally the body and the blood? Like, does a priest need to do something magical around this? Like, does it turn into his body and blood when I eat it? Like, who's allowed to come to this table? Who's not allowed to come to this table? Like, who should, like, should, should a priest, like, bless this thing? Do we need a priest in here? Can I, can I do it in my house, around my home, with my, with my friends? Can I do it in a, in a, does it need to be a cathedral? Like, we argue about it. People have killed each other over this table. I'm not, I'm not making that up. People have died over what kind of food should we have? Should it be unleavened bread or leavened bread? Does it matter? Could it be wine or juice? Like, is it what is, we argue about it. 
We've taken something that is so sacred and so precious and so meaningful, and we've turned it into one more thing to bicker about. And there's a deep, deep danger in that. A danger in that. There is a unique and special presence of God, of Christ, at this table. That's not to be argued about. I don't know how it works. I don't know exactly what's going on. But I know this, we're partaking in the presence of Christ when we come to this table. And there's one place in all the scripture that talks about this outside of the Gospels. Outside of the Gospels, there's one place where communion is clearly talked about, clearly spoken of. And it comes in 1 Corinthians. We don't have a ton of time to break this down. Here's the reality of 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about kind of this partaking in the presence of Jesus at the table. And then 1 Corinthians 11, rather than kind of being this beautiful expression, like, look how beautiful the Lord's table is. No, it's not. It's a warning. Like, don't jack this up. Don't jack it up. And I said at the very beginning of this, I think we've kind of jacked it up. I think we've kind of jacked it up. Here's what Paul says. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to read through this. I'm going to kind of unpack it as we go for the sake of time. Here, here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. It'll be up on the screen. But in the following instructions, I do not command you because when you come together, it is not for the better or for the worse. Okay? When you gather together, it's not a good thing. You guys just shouldn't even do it. You just go home. Stay home on Sunday because when you get together, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. It's for the worse. For, why is this? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There's fighting, there's bickering among them. How so? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Okay? They're coming together. They're breaking bread. They're passing the cup of wine. And Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. You've jacked this up. You've jacked it up. How they jacked it up. Here's what he says. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Paul says, right? Here's what he says. This is not the Lord's Supper. Three reasons why. Number one, you're not doing it together. You're not doing it together. Some are coming early and they're eating all the food. Some are showing up late, just like people show up late here on Sunday morning every single week. You know who you are. You know, Paul's talking. No, he's not. He's not talking about you. Right? Some are showing up late. There's some return on the plate. Some, the poor, are being told to wait outside. You guys just stay out there. We're going to let the privileged and the rich and the wealthy eat. The poor are being told to stay outside. And then the rich are getting drunk at the table. Three things. They're not doing together. The poor are being told to stay outside. The rich are getting drunk. Paul says, what? That's not the Lord's table. There's nothing like that at the Lord's table. Do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do around this table. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remind ourselves that Jesus died for us. 
Jesus rose from the dead. Why did he die? Because he's coming again so that he might come back and invite us to the table to restore the kingdom of God that we might have the invitation to extend the invitation to come and be around the table. Whoever therefore eats in this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Anytime that we come to this table in an unworthy manner, what's unworthy? Any way that is not declaring the death of our Lord until he comes again. So when we come saying, man, I, 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 should, I, I deserve to be at this table. I don't know about that. That guy should be on this table. That's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's happening. Anytime we come with sin in our hearts against somebody in this room or in any room, anytime we come choosing ourselves over Christ, when we come to this table, we come bearing our cross or we do not come at all. We come denying ourselves or we do not come at all. We come to this table seeking the goodness of others above ourselves, or we do not come at all. We come proclaiming Christ, who he was and what he's done, and the fact that he's coming again. And one day, we who gather at this table will eat with him for all eternity at the banquet feast of the bride and the groom. Paul goes on to describe this danger. He says, let a person examine himself then. And so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Discern the body. Paul says, think about those around you. The body of Christ, the church, his bride. When you come to this table, consider that someday we will all sit at the table, the largest table ever that's ever been built, that anyone's ever seen or ever known. Millions will gather at the table. The bride of Christ will be there. This is not my table. It's our table. Discern the body. How am I putting the needs of others above myself? How am I considering others more significant than myself? Who in this room have I cared for this week? Who in this room is in need of care this week? Am I caring for them or am I putting myself first? Discern the body. And if you don't, Paul says, there's a real danger here. He says, this is why some of you are sick. Some of you even died. How many of you have ever been to church and a, ser- and a pastor's preached a sermon? And at the end of the sermon, he says, we're going to receive communion together. And, and for some of you, this is going to be the most profound experience of your week. Your eyes are going to be open to the beauty of God's pursuit of his presence. You're going to marvel at his grace and mercy. You're going to be awakened to this future banquet in which we all participate together. It's going to be amazing for you. But for others of you, this is poison. And it might make you very ill. It may even kill you. Anybody ever heard that before? No? That's what Paul's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's saying this table is for those who are hungry, not for those who are hypocrites. This table is for those who say, Jesus at all cost, not myself. It's for the selfless, not the selfish. If you come to this table as a hypocrite, if you come to this table selfish, there's a real danger in this. 
And we've twisted this and we've turned it all around and we've said, hey, hey listen, you know, we got, we, got to be, we got to make sure who comes to this table, who doesn't come to this table. No, this table's for the hungry. For those who say, Jesus at all costs, I need the presence of God in my life. Jesus says, come and eat. Come and, come and drink and in delight in living water. Come taste the bread of life. This table's for you. And I have given everything that you might enter into my presence. And I want to be present with you right now in this moment in a unique and special way. And so I've given you this table that you might be reminded of God's hunger for presence with you. That you might be reminded of the expense that I punched your ticket. I paid for you to be invited to the party. I paid for it. The cost of that party was my life. And I paid it for you. If you want to cash in on that ticket, come, eat, eat. But you must leave everything behind. When Christ bids a man, he calls him to come and die. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to take up your cross and deny yourself and come and eat with the King of Kings? Are you ready to dine with him for all eternity? Or are you still nibbling on the temptation of Satan? Are you still thinking, man, that table over there looks pretty good? Which is it? Decide now. Decide now. If you're hungry for Christ and Christ alone, this table is for you. It's been given to you. It's a gift from him. It's a sacrament. It says this is for you. It's for you. Here's what we're going to do in a moment. From in a moment, we are going to take this table together. We're going to come together as a church. Those who are hungry for Christ more hungry for Christ than anything in this world, for those who are, who are willing to say, I, I have these things in my life that I know are not like Christ, but today I leave them behind. I leave them behind. And I will not pick them up again. I come to this table to be with Jesus and to be with those who are going to be with Jesus forever. Forever. Knowing that forever, the thing that's going to fulfill my soul, the thing that's going to fulfill my greatest desires is Him. It's not bread. It's not wine. It's Him. His body and His blood will fill me forever. His grace and His mercy will be the thing that I delight in forever and ever and ever. And so for those of you who are saying, man, I'm hungry for that, other than there's nothing, there's no, I would stop at nothing to get there. I invite you to come to the table. For those of you who say, man, I'm just not sure yet. I just don't know. Or, or you know what? I, I, I want Jesus, but I just can't let go of this thing. I can't let go of this thing. I'm harboring frustration. I'm harboring hate. I'm harboring bitterness. I, I can't. Maybe you need to wait on that. It's not an insult. It's just reality. This table is for those who are hungry for him more than they're hungry for anything else in the world. More than they're hungry for revenge, more than they're hungry for bitterness, more than they're hungry for lust, more than they're hungry for wealth, more than they're hungry for, for anything in the world. They're hungry for Christ. If that's you, I invite you to come and take. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to come together as a church. It's going to be a little awkward. It might take a minute. We're going to take the bread. We're going to dip it in the juice. I just want you to stay. Just stay for a minute until everybody's taking it. You can hold it in your hand. It's going to drip all over your hand. I know it's awkward. Whatever. Get over it. Then we're going to take it together. I'll lead us in that in a moment. I'm going to pray. Our hospitality team is going to come. They're going to bring out some, some fresh bread for us. And then we'll partake together for those of you who say, Jesus first at all cost. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, we come before you this morning. And for some of us in this room, we say, we are hungry for you. Genuinely hungry for you. I want you to renew my soul. I want you to fill me with life and life abundantly to the fullest extent. I'm hungry for you. I want to sing your praises. I want you to put your praises on my lips all day, every day. I want to go into my office in the morning singing your praises. I want to come home and I want to be singing your praises. I want to be laying on my pillow at night and just delighting in the work of your hand as a reflect of my day. I want to wake in the morning dreaming of you. I'm hungry for you. I'm hungry for you. And if you will help me, By the power of your spirit, I will forsake everything in this world to be with you, to draw near to you, to give you my life, to give you my heart, to give you everything. Jesus, for those who today are ready for the first time, for the first time to accept that invitation, to cash in on your body and your blood, Pray that you would remind them, that you would show them, that you would open their eyes to see how pure and how holy you make them. For those who have forgotten the significance of this table and have diminished it in their heart and their mind, would you remind them of all that it means? Would you give them a greater picture of eternity and fill them with delight and joy as they see you? the bridegroom entering in and being seated at the table of the Father in his kingdom that you have won back with your blood and where they find new delight in your finished work on the cross. Do a work in us here at Flourishing Grace. Show us who you are. Show us what you've done. Show us why you've done it. Put these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.